Lynn Bramer is well known in Chicago radio for being on the air at WXRT, and before that, he was the music director there. You know, you're very gracious in letting people interview you, and I saw a very interesting interview that you did with a high school station. That guy was really good. It was a TV station. What's it? Uh, was his name Connor? Was that? Uh, I think I think his name was Connor, and I think it was at Riverside. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. That was interesting. I recommend everybody go to YouTube and watch it because um, you talk about what you were like in high school. I uh, I don't even I didn't even know that was on YouTube. Yeah, I was a skinny kid in high school. <laughs> believe it or not, uh, was on the swim team for four years, the baseball team for four years. The only mistake I really made in uh, high school athletics was going out for the football team, and just about everybody made the squad. Uh, you just didn't get to play that much, which was. Uh, to my greater benefit, because at the time I was, I don't know, five eight, five nine, and 130 pounds, not really football material. So standing on the sideline probably saved my life. But I was devoted uh, high school swimmer and um, a pitcher. Starting freshman year, uh, the starting pitcher got bursitis. I had to step in. So freshman, sophomore, junior, senior year, I stood on the mound, glared in, at uh, high school players from around New York City and uh, either threw a fastball or a big sweeping curveball if I got ahead of the batter. So when you watch baseball now, do you really analyze it or do you just drink beer and enjoy it? Uh, I'm the sort of person that if you've never seen a baseball game before and somebody goes, hey, Lynn, you should tell them what's going on, that you've made a horrible misjudgment because I will talk their ear off. Okay, he's ahead. 0-2. Oh, He's going to waste one here. There's no reason to throw a strike. He throws a strike. The guy hits it out of the ballpark. His manager's going to yell at him. So look for a slider low and away. Yeah, I overanalyze it sometimes. I actually do unconsciously play-by-play sitting in my season tickets at Wrigley Field. Uh, okay, here comes Javi Baez. His uh, on-base percentage, 260, which is abysmal. Oh, there's a ball in the dirt. He swung and missed. So, yeah, I'm pretty deeply involved in my baseball watching, and I've infected both my wife, who, when I first met her, had never been to a baseball game, and, of course, my son, who is a diehard baseball fan now. Yeah, what's interesting is I met you, I had never met you before, I met you at a Sox game, but you're a Cubs fan, obviously. Yeah, but I, uh, the sickness of my baseball goes so deep that uh, it's just silly to say, oh, you can't go watch the White Sox. You're a Cubs season ticket holder. Because uh, going to Old Comiskey Park was part of the routine when I was the music director of it at XRT uh, through the 1980s. Norm Weiner, my program director, and I would say, hey, where should we go for dinner tonight after work? And We'd say, why don't we just go to Comiskey Park? We'll stop in at the kiosk and get the bean burrito. We'll do the around the world, get the steak sandwich from the uh, uh, the old guy with the white hair, and uh, we'll have a, an Italian sausage. We would eat our way through nine innings of a, a White Sox game in 1985. Yeah, so why White Sox instead of just hanging out at the Cubs game? Well, because in those days, there were no night games. Oh, yeah. Okay. First night game, eight eight eighty eight. I was there, it got rained out, and I was there the next night when the uh, Chicago Cubs beat the New York Mets, but that was not the most notable part of the game. The most notable part of the game was there was a ball destined for the wall in left center field, and Lenny Dykstra of the New York Mets went back to catch it, and some idiots uh, 
poured beer on him as he tried to catch the ball, which on the one hand was heartless and lacked sportsmanship and made me laugh till I cried. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, you're from New York, so when you saw the Cubs play the Mets, were you torn? Are you Mets or Yankees fan? Well, this is a hard confession to make, but I am so old, there were no New York Mets when I started watching baseball. The only team in New York at the time was the New York Yankees. So I was a diehard Yankees, Mickey Mantle, Roger Maris, Bobby Richardson, Tony Kubek, a Hector Lopez, Yogi Berra, Elston Howard baseball fan. And Yogi Berra, have you ever met him? Well, I would have loved to have met uh, Yogi Berra. I never met him, but he was part of the loss of my innocence. I can trace the loss of my innocence to... Uh, 1964, where the Yankees played the hated St. Louis Cardinals, and uh, the Yankees lost, and at the end of the World Series, they fired one of my heroes, Yogi Berra, and replaced him as manager with the manager of the St. Louis Cardinals, a Mr. Keene, and that's when I realized life made no sense at all. You fire my hero... And you hire my arch enemy. What is the sense? What is the rationality in my worldview that you would do this to me? Yeah, I was asking um, if you've ever met him because he was really, he had a way with words and he said a lot of memorable things that sounded like contradictions. And you had to stop him. He said most of the things I said, I never really said. Yeah, because I know that you're really into words because you do lens bins or you have done lens bins for a while. Yeah, that's uh, that's truly a labor of love. Lens, bin, lens bins are radio essays that uh, start with a question from a listener. And it used to be listeners would email their questions. Now they go to our website. And whatever it is, can you explain string theory? Why are teenagers mean? Uh, why are women crazy? Uh, why? Question mark. Just why? Uh, I attempt to answer them. And early on, I attempted to answer questions that were um, easy to answer. And I progressed from that to saying to myself, you know what? I'm going to answer questions that I shouldn't be able to answer. Like, um, who should load the dishwasher? Seems like a trivial thing, and it turned out to be one of the most popular lens bins I ever did, because apparently a lot of couples have fought grand battles over who best loads the dishwasher and in what way. Well, the thing about lens bins is when you started that, were you actually an on-air personality already? Uh, yeah, I was. Let's see. I was a music director starting in 1984 to 1990, so when people on social media say, hey, Lynn! Why don't you guys play this band, or why aren't you playing this song? I say, hi, whoa, whoa, hold on. I was the music director from 1984 to 1990, and you can blame me for what you heard during those six years, but after that, it was somebody else's job. I don't want to second-guess them, as people used to second-guess me. So I started doing the mornings in 1991, and Lin's was an idea for a sponsor um, sponsor wanted something special. So my program director, Norm Weiner, said, well, why don't you answer questions from listeners in a kind of creative, funny way? And it started out, I would scribble down Lynn's bin the morning that Lynn's bin was to air. And then, you know, an hour and a half later, I would read it on the air. And then my producer said, hey, 
you're killing me, man. We, we can't do it like this. So then it became a little more involved. And I don't think they ever envisioned Lindsbyn being, you know, a four-minute essay with musical references and movie and television drop-ins into a multimedia extravaganza. They probably thought I was going to throw out a one-liner and move on with my life. But uh, people seem to like it. I hope they still like it. Uh, I spend hours and hours on it, so I always appreciate it when people say, Lynn, I really like those Lynn's bins because it is not something I toss off lightly. And Pete Crozier, who now lives in Columbus, Ohio, is the only person who has produced it, put it all together. I write it, I voice it, I send some script suggestions to him, and he puts it all uh, together and uh, almost all the time makes embellishments or adds things that make the whole production better. Well, but when you did you have a regular air shift as well when you were the music director? Uh, no, I was uh, I would do maybe one show a week when I was it was a full time music director job. It wasn't really an on air job. And then I went to Minneapolis um, in October of 1990 to be a program director of a station called the Cities 97. And that was a station very much like XRT. And I was there for almost exactly one year before they coaxed me into coming back and doing the morning show. How would you describe XRT? It's unique. Um, can you, th- other than what you mentioned, I don't think there are a lot of stations like that. Well, certainly not in the commercial realm. Uh, I, th- I believe it is the last major market commercial radio station where the DJs are actually picking songs from a menu as they go along. I would think that every other major market station, at least commercial station in the country, and I'm pretty sure of this, uh, the DJs look at a list on a computer and they, you know, that's what they play. If it's a sunny day and the song says, uh, the list says, play Here Comes the Rain Again, they play Here Comes the Rain Again. Um, I like the ability to look at a sunny day and play Here Comes the Sun or uh, something else appropriate. Yeah, how how has uh, XRT been able to maintain that? Because usually, when I think of... Uh, music director and program directors, I think of, you know, payola or cocaine and the record sleeve or these other things you've heard about. Oh, yeah, if only. <laughs> well, the thing with XRT was we missed the whole cocaine gravy train because we never played songs enough to interest managers or record companies because heavy rotation, you know, back in the 80s uh, and, the, and the 70s was, you know, we'd play a single new song seven times a week. That was really hard to to make an impact, but somehow our listeners were so devoted and and listened so long that we were able to make an impact with uh, playing a song once a day. Uh, everything changes. Station's a little bit different now, um, but uh, our programming department is smaller than it's ever been before, uh, subject to the the rules of uh, budget cuts and uh, they still do an amazing job finding, you know, new songs they feel are going to fit and uh, trading in and out old songs that uh, mean a lot to listeners, you know, songs they know they're never going to hear anywhere else. Well, you know, I know that you know, you seem like a very mellow guy. I've only met you. This is only, I think, the third time I've seen you. But um, when I think of people being in radio for a while, I think of lots of parties and meeting famous people and having a great time. So was it like that before? Uh, have I met a lot of famous people? Yes. Have I been to a lot of parties just between you and me? Nobody else listening? Yes, I've been to a lot of parties. 
There have been uh, meet and greets with the Rolling Stones, which were incredibly short. But at the same time, I did have the chance to sit down and interview Mick Jagger one-on-one in the Ritz-Carlton Beverly Hills, invited by the record company to record an interview for the release of one of his solo albums, Goddess in the Doorway. And uh, I was, was brought to his room, knocked on the door. He answered, said, could you come back in a few minutes? I'm talking to the president of the record company. We said, yeah, Mick, sure, we can come back. And me and the uh, representative from the record company went down to the lobby and hung out and then got a phone call. Yeah, it's okay. You guys can come up right now. And then I went in and there was uh, an engineer taping it and everybody else was told to leave the room. And it was just me and Mick Jagger. We talked mostly about his new album. And an artist like that realizes that an interview is really a public relations opportunity. So he was charming, expansive. The thing that freaked me out was I was out to dinner the night before with some people from the record company, and they said, oh, by the way, the mix manager wants a list of the questions you're going to ask so they can approve it, which would have been fine if anybody had told me more than 10 hours before the interview. So I thought to myself, well, I don't have any questions written out that I can hand in. You know, it's yellow legal pads with notes and, you know, arrows. And so I had to get up, you know, at the break of dawn the next day and sit down and write out uh, on a computer the questions that I was going to ask so they could, you know, say, no, you can't ask this. Yeah, you can ask this. And it turned out there was absolutely no oversight. Nobody's, nobody talked to me before the interview and said, these questions are out. And the main thing was they didn't want me to get bogged down talking about the Rolling Stones because it was really a nationwide radio broadcast syndication for the new solo album. But near the end, I loosened up a little bit and I asked them a, a question um, from an interview that he did probably in 1965 or 66 and he told a great story about it. Um, it was the time when at a press conference, a journalist said, uh, are, are you satisfied right now? And everybody kind of laughs because they always laugh at press conferences with rock stars. And Mick Jagger said, do you mean sexually? And of course, everybody laughed even more. And uh, the, the woman asking the question said, uh, spiritually, financially. And he said, Sexually satisfied, financially not satisfied, and what was the third thing? The third thing he said, trying. Um, So I asked him about that, and he told a great story. He told a great story about how the press looked at rock stars like a bunch of idiots. So he was just trying to get a little smart with the phalanx of reporters asking him questions. The funny thing about that interview is about halfway through, here I am talking to one of my all-time heroes, the Rolling Stones, uh, I often refer to as my favorite rock and roll band, and here I am talking to the lead singer. Um, I'm a little dizzy from the experience, but it was an hour interview, and halfway through they had to turn the tape, they had to do something with the production, and there was like a 60-second break, and I said to Mick Jagger, okay, we're about halfway done. You're doing really great. And as soon as I said that, I wondered to myself, is Mick 
Jagger at this point in his career or his life looking for some second-rate DJ from Chicago that he's doing really great. So I think finally back on that uh, faux pas. Uh, Mick Jagger, I've done interviews with Pete Townsend, a couple with David Bowie. Um, What are they like? David Bowie, uh, David Bowie, intensely intelligent. Uh, For some reason, after 2001, we were talking about the nature of reality, and I brought up the early 20th century logical positivist Bertrand Russell, who I had studied briefly in college. But I hadn't studied him enough in college to go where David Bowie took the conversation after I brought him up. And I, my, my head was spinning with the stuff he was saying. But he was so good-natured both times I talked to him. And uh, the second time I talked to him, there'd been a television commercial, which kind of made fun of all his different personas. And um, he said, how can you not laugh at yourself? Uh, here I am a man dressed as a dog, dressed as a man. Um, And he just really kind of laughed it out, uh, laughed it off. And uh, the conversation was really interesting. Pete Townsend is uh, completely confessional. I mean, he'll tell you anything about his life. And I think as soon as he realized, you know, a lot of these rock stars come on radio shows and they go on a shock jock show or somebody that's just trying to, you know, keep the laughs rolling and they're not really music people. And I think a lot of, um, of the more, uh, famous rock stars in that situation probably put some defense up against it. You know, it's easy, easy for them to have a bad attitude, but as soon as he realized that I was there to talk about music and, and, uh, um, was intensely interested in his career and what his career had meant to me, uh, he was very easygoing, uh, was a great talker. You know, the worst thing, uh, as you know, doing interviews, is to get somebody who goes, no, mm, I don't know. And with all the people I've mentioned, Mick Jagger, Pete Townsend, David Bowie, you ask them a question, and they go with it. They tell stories, um, Of course, on the other end of the spectrum, the replacements came to XRT in the 80s, and they were pretty new. And one of their staunchest supporters was our nighttime DJ at the time, Johnny Mars. And um, he had the chance to interview him. They came in, and they were 19, 20, 21. They were still really young, and they were absolute jerks. Uh, They were such jerks that I wrote about it in one of the trade magazines, and um, it wound up in Trouble Boys, the biography. I haven't read the biography, but apparently I'm in there as saying the replacements were a bunch of jerks when they came to our station. Uh, but the thing they did was they kept badgering Johnny to play a Sonny Boy Williamson song uh, called Little Village. And the problem was uh, XRT would have Sonny Boy Williamson records. Uh, we had walls of records. So, you know, Johnny would ask them a question. They'd be off mic like this. And go, yeah, I don't know. Hey, play Sonny Boy Williams in Little Village. And he'd ask another question. They'd go, yeah, what well, kind of. Hey, play Sonny Boy Williams in Little Village. And eventually um, we got, you know, I was there in the studio monitoring it. 
and we got Sonny Boy Williams and Little Village out. And what most people don't know about that song is it starts out with a studio conversation between Sonny Boy Williamson and the engineer. And the engineer goes, what's the name of this song? And Sonny Boy Williamson says, Little Village. And the engineer says, yeah, um, but what's the name of the Little Village? Just Little Village. Yeah, but does it have a name? Does it have a name? And instead of giving a name or another answer, he just, Sonny Boy Williamson just yells, Little Village! And then a four-syllable famous epithet that will get you thrown out of any baseball game if you're a baseball manager. And it went out over the airwaves. And that was not good. That was bad. Side note, uh, the supergroup Little Village with John Hyatt and Nick Lowe um, came up with a name for their band, and it was Little Village. And we wondered if it was Little Village based on the Sonny Boy Williamson song, and the record company sent us buttons, promotional buttons, and the buttons just said in large block letters, LVMF. <laughs> we said, yeah, it's based on the Sonny Boy Williamson song. Well, did you ever see the replacements after that, and did they acknowledge what happened or not? You know, I, uh, you know, when I was in Minneapolis after that, I ran into uh, Paul Westberg in um, in the famous club there, First Avenue. We were there to see somebody else, and he was perfectly cordial, cool guy. His ex-wife worked at XRT for a few years. Oh, it's a small world, but as Stephen Wright said, I wouldn't want to paint it. Yeah, I was going to say, um, you were talking about jerks before, and okay, I've interviewed a lot of people, and I've also met various people, and um, you are seriously one of the elite in Chicago radio because you are a music director, which a lot of people want. They would love that kind of job. Right. And then you had the freedom within that job to choose music because a lot of times it's dictated by the larger company or whatever. Yeah, that's roughly. true. That definitely didn't happen in the 80s. I mean, you know, I get second-guessed by general managers and, and record companies and, and management, but uh, we were pretty insulated from all of that. And, uh, you know, it was a collaboration with me and Norm Weiner. We used to have the DJs do homework every week because in those days the DJs would get press copies of everything came out. And one of my jobs was to say, okay, here are eight records. This is, I wrote a little bit about each one of them and uh, give me your feedback. And people would turn in papers. Some of them would write paragraphs on an artist. Some of them would just say uh, A2, B1, which would refer to uh, second song, first side, first song, second side as key tracks. It was a lot of A3, B2 conversation through the course of my career as a music director. Yeah, because that's people's dream. Anybody who's really into music would love that. And then they get into the business and they realize it's not. But even with not just the corporate decisions, but so for instance, I read a biography of uh, Linda Carlisle, oh my gosh, from the Go-Go's. And, uh, well, Linda Carlisle, yeah. Yeah, Linda Carlisle. And um, everybody should read that. But And she was saying that when they came out with their one single, and then later on she came out with something, they said, well, the business has changed and we have to go about things a different way. Now, she didn't get into the details, but... She was implying that there are certain ways you have to deal with the radio stations to get play and certain things you have to do. Oh, yeah. there. I mean, there are plenty of books on the subject of shady things record companies did to uh, impress upon radio stations, you know, what they had to play. You know, the go. I worked in Albany from uh, 1977 to 1984, and after the Go-Go's released their first album that came up 
to our station, which was a little tiny double-wide trailer on a hill overlooking the Hudson River near Albany, New York. And uh, I was the music director at that radio station, too. And I remember I walked in the studio to talk to the afternoon DJ, Peggy Apple, and there were this group of girls in there. And I honestly thought that they were uh, just some high school girls on a tour or something because they looked so young. And, I, you know, I was in my 20s. I was pretty young myself then. And Peggy, the DJ, goes, hey, Lynn, I want to introduce you to the Go-Go's. I went, Go-Go's? Oh, my God. <laughs> um, so let that be a lesson to you young radio people out there. When you walk into a studio, be ready for anything. Well, back to the day. I just want to ask you about the David Bowie thing. Um, for, I'm a huge fan. But did you see the exhibit at the MCA? Not only did I see it. <laughs> But I got to go to the first press opening, so I was one of the first people there. I just want to brag about that. And the coolest thing was, I was the first person in the merchandise shop to buy a T-shirt because it wasn't open yet. And I said, can I come in and buy a T-shirt? Oh, we're not really open yet. But you know what? You can come in. You can buy something. And I still have that David Bowie shirt. It's one of my favorites. And what did you think of that exhibit? Because you knew someone. I thought it was amazing. I've seen other exhibits devoted to artists. I saw the Rolling Stones exhibit, was not impressed with that. The David Bowie exhibit, because how visual his tours were and how much of uh, an artist, both visually and musically he was, that there was a lot to look at that was really cool from costumes to uh, handwritten lyrics. I thought the whole thing was amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. So, um, but I was gonna say, you know, you had this real, you've had this really incredible job even before being on the air now. So basically, you've been living the dream that a lot of people have. Many, many people. And- I, uh, yeah, I got into radio initially in 1977 because I thought it would allow me a lot of time to write because I wanted to be a writer. And you find out that whatever you do professionally will take up all your time. And uh, I didn't really get to writing seriously again until I started doing Lynn's Bin, which people tell me someday I should put in a book, and someday I will. Yeah, you should. I mean, and also, do you have the Lynn's Bins throughout history com- compiled yes. somewhere? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Is it online, though? Is it online? <laughs> no. Um, there's a tricky part to Lynn's Bin in which. Uh, the lawyers explain what is considered fair use on the airwaves when I'm using music clips or, or news clips or movie clips in the body of Lynn's Bin cannot be put on our website, cannot be put on the internet, because then it involves the potential of piracy and lawsuits and litigation. And lawyers don't like that. They don't like litigation. Uh, so occasionally I will put... A Lynn's been on the air where I remove all the music and it hurts me because I feel like the music and all the other stuff adds something special to the entire experience. And other times I will just share the written word, the script. And it's interesting. I think I get more response to just the written word than to the naked remix of Lynn's been. Yeah. And have you ever written anything else other than um, the Lynn's been? You said you love to write. Uh, yeah, in the, in, the, in the course of my job, I've had a variety of features that have come and gone. There was something called uh, Lynn's Best um, or Best of Chicago, where I would write these vignettes about little-known places or places you might want to seek out. Um, you know, and I uh, very often will write something 
for a special occasion on the radio or an obituary. Uh, I seem to be writing pretty much all the time. And so, um, do you ever have you had a blog going, or do you have any of? Uh, do you like writing fiction also, in addition just I, to work? I so? have not. I have not written fiction. I tried to write a novel when I was thirteen or fourteen. I never got around to finishing it. I'm not averse to fiction, but I I just haven't had the chance. You know what? I'd really like to publish my mom's 1948 diary of when she graduated from Mount Holyoke College. I went there. You went to Mount Holyoke? What a coincidence. That's, well, she was she was a member of French House. Does French House still exist? No, I don't think so. Well, it was a house where you could, you could only speak French. It was for French majors. And she graduated, and there was this special student graduation uh, thing that was post-World War II where American students who were fluent in French could go to France and teach little school children how to speak English. And she took advantage of that. She graduated when she was 20 years old. So the diary is about her experience taking a, a boat across the Atlantic Ocean, going to a little town in the northwest edge of France and teaching school children and meeting boys. And it is hot stuff, <laughs> all I want to tell you, to be made into a movie. And uh, she, you know, in her diary, she says things in there. Well, we know that she was already dating my dad, who she referred to as Pookie Face. And she, in the diary, she would say, haven't heard from Pookie Face in the last week. Uh, but at the same time, she was going over to guys' houses at midnight to help them translate something. And, you know, in my mind, I'm going, Mom, what the hell are you doing? You never would have let me do that when I was 20 years old, you know, if I was still living at home. Uh, so I would send portions to my brothers as I was digitizing it and say, boys, you might want to sit down for this passage. Yeah, and uh, I was going to say, because you say you, you can make it into a script, I mean, you must have a lot of high-level contacts through, because of your work you history. I think so, but, but let me tell you this. I've been doing Lynn's Bin uh, since 2002. It's only once a week now. It was for a long time twice a week, and... For a short time, people were enjoying it so much that they wanted me to do it three times a week. I can't remember if I did that for a year or a half a year, but it nearly killed me because it takes you know hours and hours and hours to write each one. Um, where was I going with this? Oh, because I, I assume you know very well-connected people. Oh, because... yeah, no. I, I, the, the short answer is, is no, but the, my point was having put over... 2,000 pages of written word on a major market radio station, there's really been only one person that said, hey, I'll publish that. You'd think there has to be, you know, somebody in publishing in the city of Chicago that go, hey, that would make an interesting book. But apparently not. You're listening to the Radio Girl Podcast with Margaret Larkin. And thanks to Jeff Davis, who's at jeffdavis.com. And Lynn and I did this interview in the studio where I work full-time at WBBM News Radio. Yes, I am working full-time in radio now as a production coordinator at WBBM. And I'd like to thank everyone for your support over the years as I've done this podcast and other radio endeavors. But because you've met all these well-known people throughout the years and even people who work for them, what have you... Has it opened up doors to have really cool experiences? Well, 
the only really door that opens is that it's part of my job to go see concerts and to see artists. And um, I can usually get a ticket for any concert in the city of Chicago. But I'm also on a press list, so I get invited to everything. I get invited to the Steppenwolf and the Goodman Theater and Victoria Gardens, Victory Gardens. And um, so there isn't enough time in the year for me to do all the things I want to do in terms of going to see stuff and hear stuff. Uh, You know, I'm really normally a very bad backstage goer because the artists just want to get the hell out of there. But I've had a few great experiences backstage hanging out. I think one of the my favorite was Robert Randolph, um, a pedal steel genius, invited me and some other people from the station onto his tour bus where he played DJ and brought out a bottle of tequila and people slow danced. It was really the sort of thing you remember. Yeah, and that's the kind of stuff I'm interested in. So have you <laughs> this is why I read memoirs of these people, but uh, I remember sitting between um, Benmont Tench of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers and Amy Mann, who at the time was a member of Till Tuesday, in a hotel room near the Rosemont Horizon, as it was called at the time. Tom Petty had played a gig there, and they, the record company you know, had a post-concert get-together party. Tom Petty was there, and I remember saying to myself, oh, I'll have time to talk to Tom Petty at some point. Um, and I never did get a chance to talk to him, ever. But I do remember sitting uh, next to Amy Mann and Ben Montench, and um, Amy Mann seemed a lot more interested in the keyboard player of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers than she seemed to talk to somebody she didn't even know who I was. Well, what about, you know, Spinal Tap, right? I love that movie. Yes. So have you seen that in real life, that kind of, those parties and so forth? Like schmoozing and... Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I've seen schmoozing. Um, I, you know, I was sent to New Orleans to see a new artist. And the thing I most remember about that was, you know, big dinner parties for like 50 people in, in record business, people from record stores, people from radio stations, people from record companies. Uh, but also it was the first time I ever went to New Orleans. And uh, I made a point of going back there many, many times. Uh, there was a wild party in Buffalo for a band that nobody would remember that started with a um, uh, dinner at the famous Anchor Bar where they invented chicken wings. We had chicken wings for dinner. And I remember walking to the venue and I had a giant denim jacket at the time. And somehow I had sequestered uh, beer bottles, like nine of them, in my denim jacket. And I'm walking with some of the heads of record companies to this venue and somebody says, boy, sure, I'm thirsty. I could use a beer. Go, you want a beer? I got a beer. Got one right here. And I kept pulling beers out of my denim jacket and (laughs) handing them around to other radio people, record company people. And it was from that experience that one of the record company people called XRT and said, you know what? I was hanging out with this guy from Albany, New York, music director, um, I know you're looking for a music director. I I think this could be your guy. So the key to my getting a job at WXRT was actually handing out nine beers from my large denim jacket in Buffalo, New York in 1984. Ooh. Yeah, and I'm just wondering how you have, other than handing out beers, 
what is the secret to your success? Is okay. if there is a secret? Uh, no, there is. There is a great secret, and you know I've seen uh, high-powered and high-paid disc jockeys come and go over. Uh, let's see, I came here in '84, so that was a long time ago, 38 years ago. I was the morning guy for 28 years. I've been doing middays for two years. The key is working cheap and not complaining all the time. And those two things will get you very far in life. But you don't strike me as somebody who works for cheap. I mean, because you got into radio when well, things were work, still. I, I don't work for cheap anymore. Now I'm, you know, I have nightmares about this now. I'm, don't share this with anybody now. I'm really overpaid. But, uh, you know, when I left Albany, New York, this was my conversation. They wanted me to come to be the music director of one of the iconic radio stations in the United States of America in Chicago. Uh, at WXRT, a station that I had dreamed about working at when I was just a college radio guy at Colgate University. And, um, you know, they called and said, we're really interested in you coming here. And I said, well, you know, I'm the music director here. I made a name for myself. I'm the afternoon DJ. Uh, they call me the Reverend of Rock and Roll. And I'm making $14,000 a year. So you're going to have to do a little bit better than that. And they did. They did a little bit better than that. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. And I was going to say, back to the jerk concept. Um, I just can't believe that you, I've said this before to certain people, but I can't believe that you've had so much success and you don't seem like a jerk at all. Oh, no, I'm definitely so, not a jerk. I, I really go out of my way to not be a jerk. Yeah. When did you learn that lesson? Because it seems like there are jerks that do very well. So You're right. That is really on your resume, I think, for the, the guys who have made millions of dollars in radio. I think right at the top of the resume, I am an incredible jerk. Uh, it, I don't think it's in my nature, really. I, uh, it's just not the way I, I feel about the world and about people. Um, and and I, I also... You know, when somebody breaks bad on me, I I can't really hold a grudge very long. Really try to be friends with everybody. Yeah, and I was going to say also, um, I did, I I have seen you claim that you're a nerd, or you have been a nerd. Are you still? What's your nerd status at this point? Uh, well, you know, when I was music director at XRT, musically, I was a top flight nerd. I knew every record, every artist that was coming out. The landscape was smaller then. There wasn't as much coming out then as there is now. But you could call me up and ask me about, you know, a song. Or, oh, that's the first single from Peter Case. It's uh, He's a singer-songwriter. Um, you know, <laughs> there, were, there was no stone unturned. My office was a mess. It was, you know, skyscrapers of CDs or record albums in my office. And I spent my whole day listening and talking to people that would tell me about what I was listening to. Um, so, musically in the 80s, phenomenal nerd. I'm nerdy musically in different ways because there are aspects of my musical taste that have gone unnoticed, uh, which I've been able to indulge a little bit with one of the Odyssey exclusive radio channels um, online. Odyssey.com has a bunch of channels. You know, all the DJs at XRT curated their own stations. Terry Hemmert has one of New Orleans music, Let the Good Times Roll. Marty has a punk one called Spiked, and I have one called Americana, where I play uh, exclusively uh, great singer-songwriters 
you know, from America for the most part. And uh, actually, somebody made fun of me and said, that's not Americana. That channel should just be songs Lynn likes. But the other aspect of my nerdiness, to tell you the truth, Margaret, baseball. Phenomenal nerd. Um, well, you're in the right town for it. I am. This is a fantastic baseball town with an incredible legacy. Uh, and the other thing is I'm a little bit of a literature nerd. You know, I can sit here and quote uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins, not I'll not carry in comfort, despair, not feast on thee, or I caught this morning, morning's minion kingdom of Delight's Dauphin, uh, early 20th century, although I do not hope to turn again, although I do not hope, although I do not hope to turn, desiring this man's gift and that man's scope. I'm a little nerdy when it comes to um, literature, especially poetry, and uh, something that people might want to check out, uh, John Langford, artist, singer-songwriter, founding member of the Mekons, member of the Waco Brothers. He and I, um, I guess it was a year ago, did a video where we read Dylan Thomas's Christmas classic, Child's Christmas in Wales. And you can find it on YouTube via Google, John Langford, Child's Christmas in Wales. Well, it seems like the people in music radio, I would say they're not exactly reading literature out loud. And oh, it depends on the person. Okay, so have you met other people like that throughout the country who are in music? Okay, so I'm just wondering, how did you, or was it difficult to integrate yourself in such a culture when you were not the typical music person? Uh, Music pro, I should You mean, did I get away with uh, reading passages from Dante's Inferno (laughs) as I introduced um, the devil inside? Yeah, I still do that occasionally. Um, you have to understand that when I got into radio, it was the Wild West. Anything goes. I mean, you could do anything in terms of presentation, choice of songs, um, the, the way you talked on the radio. Um, back in 1978, I used to do a feature called The Hump the Unusual Moment, and it was phenomenally self-indulgent. And um, I hope never nobody ever hears those tapes, because I would do like... And off the top of my head, three-minute speed rap rave to introduce some curio, some unusual piece of music that I promised people would shake uh, their reasonable will and bring them that much closer to total consciousness. Well, it sounds like uh, people were high, but... (laughs) (laughs) They were listening, they were. Well, um, as I say that um, you talked about singer-songwriters, and when I think of that, I think of the 70s, and I think of that guy, my gosh, I forgot his name, the music executive, hugely successful from, I think, Brooklyn originally. But anyway, when I think of singer-songwriters, I think of 70s, which was really maybe early to mid-70s. Oh, no. Uh, the the world of singer-songwriters is as strong today as, as it ever has been. Uh, it's It amazes me how many singer-songwriters. Right here in Chicago, there's a guy named James Elkington. He's better known as the guitarist with Jeff Tweedy's band, and he plays with um, um, 11th Dream Day sometimes. But he's put out a couple of albums, acoustic guitar, company with an acoustic guitar, a ferocious finger picker, an amazing songwriter, and uh, you'd really have to wend your way through a million people before you found somebody that had listened to these solo albums. Well, yeah, because I think that when when I think of singer songwriting, I think singer songwriters, I think of 
the seventies really because that's when it was really pop mainstream. And now it was, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, you've got today you've got guys that have been working for the last twenty five, thirty years like Lyle Lovett and Steve Earle and um, you know, Lucinda Williams, uh, people like that carrying the torch and they're all these new singer songwriters that uh, you know, Sam Abaddon, uh, Joe Pug, uh I am constantly filled with amazement at the brilliance that keeps coming from uh, singer-songwriters out of uh, the United States and Canada and, and the UK. Well, you know, now you were saying that there's more music now. What do you think about the internets, the opportunities on the internet for musicians and so forth? Well, it, it really gives a lot of musicians a chance that they never had before to build their own career without signing some ridiculous contract to some major label. Uh, the other side of that coin is it's so hard now to break through the noise and the clutter because everybody has a song, everybody has a band, everybody has a home studio. And how do you distinguish? How do you find, you know, uh, who the most valuable people are in in any genre but you know i think of chance the rapper is somebody that kind of did it all on his own and would get overtures from record companies and he'd say nah i'm good nah i'm doing fine no i'm good and uh provided him with a lot of freedom and i think the biggest mistake any songwriter any artist can make is say to themselves you know the record company said if I just sounded like this, things would be a lot easier, that I would be a top 10 artist. And it never works like that. It's the artists that stick to their own vision that sometimes break through and become successful just because they had a vision that was all their own. Yeah. And then what do you think about um, in terms of just, you know, the role of music radio now that there are so many outlets on the Internet and so forth? Well, it's, you know, it's a challenge because you're facing, uh, you know, streaming services. Um, you know, for XRT, we're actually competing with our own company that has, what, 300 channels on odyssey.com. Uh, but you know what? In um, the 70s, they told me rock and roll radio was dead because it was disco. Disco was all there was going to be. Nobody cared about anything but disco. It was going to be disco here, disco there, disco on this station. Stations were changing their format in the middle of the day, going, the nonstop party has begun. It's disco 101. You guys are done. It's over. And then disco faded, and the next thing was MTV. You guys are dead. You're done. MTV. and Nobody's going to listen to the radio. They're just going to watch MTV videos. That's all there is. That's all they want to do. MTV, you guys are done. Rock and roll radio's over. MTV hardly plays music anymore. And bit by bit, internet radio, streaming services uh, come along, and certainly they draw from some of our audience. But <laughs> I wish I had the numbers or could share them. But the, the nationwide streaming of WXRT in 20. 22, uh, at least among the hundreds of stations that are owned by Odyssey, outstrip every other music station by a factor of like two to one. 
it's an astonishing ongoing success story. I mean, just the way it is. And, you know, uh, the directions change and um, play more of this or more of that. Uh, but the bottom line is we provide, um, you know, a palette with a lot of colors um, and especially felt the uh, listener support during the lockdown. People were stuck at home and uh, we got hundreds of emails and contacts through social media from people that said, you know what, I, I don't know what I would have done without XRT. And it wasn't just the music, it was the fact that you know, they've known the people they listen to. They've known these voices for decades, whether it's me. I mean, I was the new guy up to about 10 years ago, uh, whether it's Richard or Marty or uh, Ryan Arnold, um, Terry Hemmert, who is retired and on the air all the time because somebody's always on vacation, Frankie Lee, Johnny Mars. These are all voices that people have known and loved. And then the new voices like Laura Monday. And Emma Mack, those voices are irresistible. So it's a very personal connection we have. It goes way beyond, oh, the streaming service tells me what I might like next. Well, there's something magical about turning on the radio and hearing a song. Maybe it's even a song you know and you've heard for years. But somehow the feeling that you're part of a collective, you're part of an audience that you know, has been together for years, uh, listening to the same song at the same time. There's something magical about that. Well, it seems like um, what you're describing about XRT is what you're talking about musicians and um, recording artists, that if they stick to their style, they will, you know, they'll they'll break through all the noise. And that's what XRT's basically done, because I grew up listening to it. And I started listening to it when I was really young. So I think uh, it's really very unique. Did, did, this, is, this, is like, this is like a sales pitch for XRT. But. Did, your, uh, did your parents listen to XRT? How did you start listening to XRT? No, I'm older than you think. <laughs> okay, I started listening in, uh, I'd say when I was 11 or 12, and that was um, in the early 80s. Wow. I'm 53, everybody. So She looks like she's 33. Thank you. What? I know, because people always ask me that. Like, I told somebody, oh, yeah, I grew up listening to you. And they're like, what? And I said, I'm older than you think. Or I like when people lecture me and they say, oh, you and your generation. Yeah, I'm like, I am your generation. Knew what things were like in the 80s. Yeah, I'm what? like, I am your generation. Like, what? <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> well, I'm glad you had XRT to grow up to. Yeah, and I was, I, I remember I called in when I was, I think I was 12 or something, because they had this, I, I know you remember this, because they had this thing that said, Teenagers don't listen to us. Oh, yeah. No, there was... Uh, I was old, mad. It was actually before I got there, so it had to be like 82. They very sparingly have, as people can attest, people know, you know, you never see XRT television commercials. Uh, you hardly ever see billboards or anything like that. So in around 1982, they thought it was smart to say uh, XRT. It's not just for 16-year-olds. And all the 16-year-olds listening got got pissed off. They're like, what are you talking about? I listen all the time. Yeah, because I think I started listening either in the late 70s or 1980, like when I was when I was in uh, middle school. Uh-huh. And so I was very offended by that, and I called up the station to complain, because by that time I was uh, probably in high school. But I was I was really into cutting-edge music. I listened to the college stations and so forth. Right. So. No, that, that, that is not what you want to do. You don't want to insult a potential portion of your audience, especially... A portion of your audience that in eight, ten years 
will be the demographic you're dying right. to have. Well, and also the people who listened to that in college radio and so forth and went to record stores. Like I used to go to record stores and get recommendations from the guy working there. Right. That did exist, everybody. And I was very sophisticated with my musical taste, so it was very offensive. You're like offending the people who are really trying to be, be you know, listen to different kinds of things. I, I think I speak for uh, all the DJs at WXRT when I say it's not our fault. I <laughs> right. swear to God. Yeah. So, but um, I, I want to ask you about New York because okay, you're not you're not from here originally. You're Don't from, tell people that. Well, no, you said it everywhere online. Yeah. It's not. It's Everybody not. Everybody thinks I'm from Chicago, right? Because you're a Cubs fan and not a Sox fan, but which is typical tourist. But um, take <laughs> it easy. <laughs> no, no, I grew up as a Cubs fan. But um, what is uh, what is Queens like? You're from Queens. It is, uh, yeah, I'm from Queens. It's um, the current Queens is more hipster, right, than it when it was when you were growing up. Uh, definitely, I think there are hipster, more hipster communities in uh, Queens uh, because Manhattan is impossibly expensive. So the hipsters go to Brooklyn or they go to Queens. And uh, to me, Queens was, you know, it's not a place of skyscrapers. It's three million people. You know, it's the po- it's essentially the population of. Uh, the city of Chicago in one of the five boroughs in New York. So there are a lot of people there, but it's all in apartment buildings. It's residential. You know, there are a few tall buildings that house people and factories and uh, things like that. Um, but growing up for me, where I did, it's very much like being on the far north side of the far south side of Chicago. Um, like Beverly or, or Saugnash, and uh, that was my neighborhood. And I was actually grew up pretty close to the Forest Hills Tennis Stadium, which meant um, the U.S. Open used to be held there. It was kind of the Wrigley Field of uh, tennis stadiums, and they opened a huge complex in fl- nearby Flushing, New York. Uh, so um, Forest Hills Tennis Stadium fell on non-U.S. Open times. But over the years, they had concerts there. The Beatles played there in 1964. Sly and the Family Stone played there in 1969, 1970. And some of the most memorable concerts of my life were held a third of a mile, half a mile from my house at the Forest Hills Tennis Stadium. So I could just walk down there. And it was an open-air stadium, so we could sit outside. And one of my great memories of sitting outside listening to music was being there for Simon and Garfunkel's final concert together before they started doing reunions. It was 1970, Hills Tennis Stadium, and part of the emotional impact was that Simon and Garfunkel both grew up in Hills, Queens. So they were playing their final show in their hometown, and we couldn't get tickets who so were sitting outside, and we could, you could hear it pretty well. But I was sitting there with a girl named Wendy. I would have been 15 or 16, and a redheaded kid from the neighborhood named David Caruso, who went on to be in NYPD Blue and uh, a few movies and, um, oh, uh, the show out of Miami where he was, uh, he worked at the greatest, uh, most expensively built facility for doing, uh, studying people who had just been shot, you know. Uh, So that was one of my great memories being with a kid that we just call Caruso and listening to Simon and Garfunkel 
inside the stadium. I did get inside to see The Who in 1971, just before they released Who's Next. So the first time I heard Won't Get Fooled Again was live in concert. That's exciting. Yeah. I played in the Forest Hills Little League, which was a big deal. Um, I used to shut down Queens Boulevard and have a parade of all the teams, eight, eight-year-olds through 12-year-olds, hundreds and hundreds of kids. And, of course, Manhattan itself was just uh, a quick ride on the E or the F to 7th Avenue, changed to the D or the B to 59th Street, Columbus Circle, and you were in the center of it. So what did you think when you came to Chicago? Well, the funny thing was uh, my uncle, my father's brother, lived in the suburbs of Chicago and really lived here his whole life. And uh, he told me, you know, Lynn, I know you're from New York, but you're going to come here and you're going to fall in love with the city. And, you know, I'd never lived in Chicago. I was a New Yorker. And I sit in my mind, I'm going, yeah, whatever. And uh, I've been here ever since, including a sabbatical in Minneapolis. But I can't envision ever living in a city other than Chicago, even though it's, you know, the wind chill right now is four below zero. Chicago is who I am now. Chicago is part of me. Let me know what you think. Email me at margaret at radiogirl.us. You can also call or text me at 716-202-TALK. That's 8255. And like the Radio Girl Facebook page. You can find out about who's coming up next, see pictures, listen to audio, and more.